opening scripture will be taken from Mark chapter 9, verses 33 through 35. Again, that's Mark chapter 9, verses 33 through 35. And it reads, Then he came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What was it you disputed among yourselves on the road? But they kept silent, for on the road they had disputed among themselves who would be the greatest. And he sat down, called the twelve, and said to them, If anyone desires to be first, he shall be last of all, and serve and servant of all. Thank you, Dusty, for reading our scripture tonight. We're grateful for your presence. It's good to have visitors with us. As always, we encourage you to come back. We've had a good day. A lot of folks are away. It is spring break for many, and we hope that all will have a safe travel. We'll be back this next Sunday. We're glad that you're here, and tonight we're going to be looking at the passage read a moment ago, Mark chapter 9, specifically beginning in verse 33, Mark 9. We're going to be asking the question tonight, who's the greatest? It's not uncommon in the sports world to have questions that are raised about Individual players, who's the greatest? In basketball, that question has been asked. Comparisons have been made. A lot of discussions have been engaged in through the years. Is Michael Jordan the greatest? LeBron James, is it now Stephon Curry? It's hard to answer that question, really. That's just one sport that we could ask the question. What's even more interesting is to ask the question in the spiritual realm, who's the greatest? When you think about all the disciples, who was the greatest? Tonight I want us to look at Mark chapter 9. Think about this question in light of what Mark bears out, beginning in verse 33 and following. I want to begin by noting together the conversation among the disciples. In verse 33, listen if you would, to what Mark says, beginning in verse 33. When Jesus comes to Capernaum, the Bible says, when he was in the house, he asked them, that is, he asked the disciples, what was it you disputed among yourselves on the road? Now, I want you to imagine the disciples as they hear the Lord ask this question. Because in verse 34, the text says, they kept silent. For on the road they had disputed among themselves or they had discussed among themselves who would be the greatest. Matthew tells us in Matthew chapter 18 verse 1 that the disciples had come to Jesus on one occasion and had asked him who would become the greatest. Now I understand in the realm of sports asking the question Who's the greatest, whether it be basketball, football, baseball, whatever? I can understand in the realm of business, who was the greatest? In the sphere of politics, who was the greatest politician? But it is hard to conceive of the disciples asking Jesus, who would be the greatest? Or conversing among themselves, and asking this question, who's going to be the greatest? 
If you had to pick one, who would you say? Who would you say became the greatest? Jesus is going to deal with this. And I think when you look at the text, you'll find out that there were some desires, not unlike many of us today, among the disciples. They wanted recognition. They wanted prominence. They wanted position. And so, in light of that, think about what is said, verse 14. They had discussed, disputed among themselves, who would be the greatest. So they're interested in prominence, and then over in Mark chapter 10, we find out they're interested in a position. Pick up with me in Mark chapter 10. You remember the sons of Zebedee had come to Jesus on one occasion, and they had said to him, Grant us, verse 37, that we may sit one on your right hand and the other on your left in your glory. Jesus would say in verse 38, you do not know what you ask. Now in light of this conversation, I want you to consider with me the clarification. Because Jesus is going to clarify for them and for us and for all people what it means to be great in the kingdom of God. And again, we ask the question, who's the greatest? When I think about the apostles, the disciples of Jesus, typically, what comes to my mind, spiritual giants. First, individuals that had the opportunity to spend some three and a half years following in the footsteps of Jesus. Can you imagine going with Jesus from town to town, place to place, and just observing him as he dealt with people and the, very, the variations of people. Jesus dealt with people from all walks of life. He dealt with different personalities. And yet he made a great impression upon those people that he came in contact with. They had the opportunity to hear him, to hear all the great messages and then the miracles, you think about all the great miracles that they saw him perform. Jesus undoubtedly was great. He was and is, as far as I'm concerned, the greatest of the greatest. The best of the best. And so here are these spiritual giants, or men who would later become spiritual giants, and you have to understand they were works in progress, just like we today. In our Christian lives, we are works in progress, aren't we? We start out as babes in Christ, and we grow and mature, and hopefully and prayerfully, we grow to maturity. So we are works in progress. Maybe we're not where we want to be, but we're moving towards a goal. So here are these guys that would become spiritual giants, and they want to know, who's the greatest among us? You can just hear them talking. And you could imagine in your mind each of them making a case as to why he ought to be considered the greatest. John, James, Peter. What about Judas Iscariot? You can go through the different apostles, disciples, Matthew, on and on. But who's the greatest? So, 
What about the clarification? Did Jesus have to clarify to them greatness in the kingdom of God? Yes, he did. Did he have to just say, now wait a minute. Wait a minute, guys. You're all wrong when it comes to greatness in the kingdom of God. So having said that, what Jesus is going to do is clarify position and prominence in the kingdom of God. What they're going to learn, what they're going to find out is their idea of prominence and position in the kingdom is far different than what the Lord envisioned. And so in verse 35, Jesus sat down and called the twelve and said to them, If anyone desires to be first, he shall be last of all. Let's just think for a minute about position. For many of us, it's all about rank and honor and position. and We, we want a good standing, and we like to think that we're the best of the best, and that we're at the top of the class. What Jesus is saying in the kingdom of God is simply this. Position is out. It's not about what position you occupy. I understand that there are various offices in the church. Some serve as elders, some serve as deacons, some are teachers, preachers, etc. There are various classes, but that doesn't mean that that makes one person better than another or become more, just because a person is more visible in the eyes of some doesn't mean that he or she is above them. And so this concept of being first in honor or rank, what the Lord's saying is, that's not the case in the kingdom. Now, I would grant that there was a lot of confusion on the part of the apostles when it came to the kingdom of God. They were thinking about this earthly kingdom, weren't they? And yet Jesus said in Luke chapter 17, the kingdom of God does not come with observation. We don't define the kingdom of God geographically speaking. It is a spiritual institution. You remember Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world in John chapter 18 when he stood before Pilate. The apostles, the disciples, they had the mistaken notion that this was going to be some type of earthly kingdom. Again, look at Mark chapter 10. James and John said, Grant us that we may sit one on your right hand and the other on your left in your glory. They were all wrong when it came to the kingdom. In Acts chapter 1, after Jesus had died, been resurrected from the grave, about to ascend to heaven, they asked the question, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? So they were still mistaken. And Jesus spent some time after he was resurrected, some 40 days, teaching things pertaining to the kingdom of God. I think, again, trying to clarify to them, it is a spiritual entity. There are people today that mistake the spiritual nature of the kingdom. Jesus would say in Mark 9, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God would come in the lifetime of some of those who were living. Mark 9, verse 1. So, it's not about position, it's not about prominence. 
Continue on. Listen to him again back in Mark chapter 9. Jesus said, If anyone desires to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. The word servant as used by Jesus here carries with it the idea of one who execute, executes the commands of another. For example, somebody who executes the commands of his master. It would denote somebody who is a servant to the king. In this case, the disciples were serving the king of kings, the Lord of lords. Today, those of us who are Christians, we too, we serve the king of kings and Lord of lords, don't we? Another interesting aspect of this word is that it encompasses a waiter, one who would serve food, or as we would say, wait on tables. Think about what Jesus is saying here. He's saying, you've got this whole idea, this concept in your mind of greatness in the kingdom of God. What you've got to understand is that the pathway to greatness in the kingdom is through service. When Jesus came to earth, what did he come to do? The Bible says, Have this mind in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who existing in the form of God, counted not being on an equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant. Jesus came to serve, didn't he? He came to serve the human family. Pick up with me in Mark chapter 10 again. Listen to what Jesus says about this whole concept of servanthood to James and John. He said in verse 42, You know that those who are considered rulers over the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. Yet it shall not be so among you, but whoever desires to become great among you shall be your servant. Whoever desires, whoever of you desires to be first, shall be slave of all. And then verse 45. He uses his, his own life as an example of servanthood. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for the many. Now, Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 2 that Jesus has left us an example that we should follow in his steps, didn't he? Paul said that we are to have the mind of Christ, okay? What was the mind of Christ? A servant. What was the example of Jesus? A servant. So what's the Lord saying to us today? You want to be great in the kingdom of God? You want to be somebody in the kingdom of God? Here's the way to become great in the kingdom of God. Serve. Be a servant. We live in a day and time when many people are self-absorbed. It's all about them. One of the problems we have is that concept, that idea has filtered into the church. And so you got a lot of people in the church today, they want to be served, but they don't want to serve. They want others to serve them. They want to be waited on. They want people to attend to their needs and their wants and their, their desires. And, and listen, there are, there's a time when based on needs, we ought to serve others. But ultimately, our desire ought to be to serve one another. It's about servanthood. The church can be great and is great if her members are what? Servants. Somewhere along the line, 
We got out of the serving business in the church, didn't we? A lot of people. A lot of people got in their heads the idea that if I come and occupy a pew, then I'm, I'm okay. Christianity is a lot more than occupying a pew. It's about serving. You remember in Matthew chapter 25 when Jesus pictured the last day, the judgment, when he talked about the Son of Man sitting upon the throne of his glory? And he said all nations would be gathered before him. He would begin to separate them as the shepherd divides the sheep from the goats. To those on the right hand, he would say, Come, blessed of my Lord, enter, come, blessed, enter into the kingdom prepared for you. He would say, I was hungry. What would you do? You gave me something to eat. I was thirsty. You gave me something to drink. I was a stranger. You took me in. I was naked. You gave me something to wear. Sick and in prison, you visited me. What did they do? They did something more than just worship. They served. The church today needs servants. Not about position, not about prominence, not about prestige, not about popularity. It's about being a servant. Just getting involved. The beauty of Christianity is, and the beauty of servanthood, it's open to all. You're not too old, you're not too young. I think about it in these terms. If you can fog a mirror, then there's something for you to do. I don't care if you're 95 years old, if you can fog a mirror, then you can do something. You could pray for somebody, you could send a card, you could call somebody. There are opportunities to serve. Let me give you a couple of examples of people who were older. And yet these people served. The first, well actually there are two. In Exodus chapter 7, verse 7, the Bible speaks of Moses and Aaron. Moses was 80 years old. His brother Aaron was 83 when they went to stand before Pharaoh. Imagine, here are these older gentlemen standing before the king of Egypt and they're saying on behalf of God, let my people go. Here is Moses and Aaron and they are leaders among the people of God. And Moses, by, by and large, the greatest leader and lawgiver in the history of Israel. And yet, as an older man, God used him, didn't he? Another example, what about Caleb? In Joshua 14, when Caleb was 40 years old, God sent him out to spy the land, the land that they were to inherit. Joshua and Caleb were faithful in that they saw that the land could be taken. So in Joshua chapter 14, Caleb talks about how he was 40 years old, was sent out to spy the land. And so now at 85 years of age, he talks about his strength. And you know what he said regarding the boundaries that would become his? Give me this mountain. Here's a guy 85 years old. He's ready to go to work. The problem is sometimes in the church, we become older in life and we think we've done our, our job. We have the idea our job's done. There's nothing for us to do. Where did we ever get that idea? 
Where'd we ever get in our head that when we, when we turn 65 that we're to retire secularly and spiritually? 65 is the new 45. At least it looks that way to me. Looking that way more and more every day. And I'm not anxious to get to 65. Look, if you're a 65, God bless you. I'm grateful to grow older. And I appreciate the aging process to some extent. But what I want you to see is as we grow older, there are things we can do. I mean, you go back and you, you look at Moses and Aaron, Caleb, and other saints. And here they are serving God and they're active. Now, you might ask the question, what, what can I do? I'm glad you asked that because there are things you can do. If you are older, in Titus chapter 2, do you remember what Titus was instructed to relate? Look, if you would, at Titus chapter 2 just very quickly. In Titus chapter 2, Paul, in writing to Titus, of course, in chapter 1, he had encouraged him to ordain elders in every city. In Titus chapter 2, verse 1, he said, verse 1, As for you, speak the things which are proper for sound doctrine, that the older men be sober, reverent, temperate, sound in faith, in love and patience. That the older women likewise, that they be reverent in behavior, not slanderers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things. That they admonish the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, homemakers, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be blasphemed. What Paul was saying is you can be a mentor. And I think in this day and time, there are a lot of young folks that need somebody to mentor them. They need somebody that can set an example. They need somebody that can say, look, here's how you conduct your business. And sadly, we got, we've got a lot of young folks in the world today, they like direction, they like education, they like guidance. And as an older person, as a more mature person in Christ, we can teach them, can't we? We can encourage them. That's what Paul's saying. There are some of you that have a lot of Bible knowledge. There are some of you that have the ability to teach. Could I ask you a question? Why aren't you teaching? You could teach. Just because you're older doesn't mean that you're not needed. You're needed. We need each and every person. There are a lot of things you can do. Not just teach, but there are a lot of things that you can do. But you have to develop a servant mentality. It's all about serving. And so, if you're older, a lot you can do. If you are younger, there are things you can do. I want to give you an Old Testament example of somebody that was a young person but that welded a lot of influence. His name was Josiah. At the tender age of eight, Josiah became the king over the southern kingdom. And he led a tremendous restoration among the children of Israel. Eight years old, he became king. 
And then as he became a teenager, he led this great restoration. Served as king for 31 years, if I recall correctly. Timothy. Do you remember what Paul said to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 4? Let no one despise your youth, but be an example to the believers in word and conduct, in love and spirit and faith and purity. Do you think Paul believed that Timothy could be an asset to the church, that he could use his talents for the glory of God? You better believe it. We have young ladies in this congregation that have a lot of talent. And they can use that in a positive way. We have young men that have a lot of talent and they can use their talents to the glory of God. It begins with viewing ourselves as servants. With the mentality that we're not here to be served, but rather we're here to serve. One of the things that, one of the things that I think makes the church great is that we become visible in the community and the community sees us as servants. That's what made, I think that's what attracted people to Jesus. Here he is going out from town to town, place to place, house to house, synagogue to synagogue, and he is viewed as a servant, isn't he? So, their conversation and then the clarification and finally, the correlation. Jesus was a master teacher. One of the things that he does in this context is use an object lesson. In other words, in this particular setting, he uses what we would call a picture. Listen to what he said, verse 36. Jesus took a little child and set him in the midst of them and when he had taken him in his arms, he said to them, all right, here's Jesus. They've been arguing or disputing and discussing among themselves who's the greatest. And you can just hear them jockeying for position and prominence in the kingdom. And so Jesus says, I've got to do some teaching. I've got to teach you guys about the kingdom. And so he takes a young child, places him in the midst of them, and here's the point. Whoever receives one of these little children in my name receives me. Whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Why do you think Jesus, on this occasion, chose a little child to make his point? I think there are a number of reasons. Let me just share a couple that I think emerge out of this picture. Children are humble by nature, aren't they? So here you have this humble child, and not just humble, but children are, for the most part, teachable. They're not like those of us who, as we grow older in life, we become set in our ways. It's difficult to change us, but they're humble, and they are teachable. And then the other thing that I would add to this, and I think really this is in large part, the main point. When you have a child, Zach and Christine have a small baby. Jared and Anna, small baby. 
When that baby came, from, came home from the hospital, did they just tell that child, look, here's your room, there's your clothes, we eat 7.30 in the morning, noontime, and 5 o'clock. And by the way, the refrigerator's over there. Is that what they said? Not at all. Did they take them into the washroom and say, now here's the washer and dryer if you need it. There's detergent and fabric softener. And do that either. When you have a child, it is a life-altering experience. As they tell the Marines when they get off the bus at Paris Island, life as you once knew it has now ceased. As a parent, life as you once knew it, it's over. How long do you serve those children? It is a round-the-clock job, isn't it? You're feeding, you're rocking, you're feeding, you're rocking, you're changing diapers, you're praying that that baby will sleep at night. It is 24-7 servanthood, isn't it? You have to attend to that baby's every need, every whimper, round the clock. What does that baby do for you? You tell your baby to take the garbage out? Well, how about, how about iron your Sunday clothes? Don't do that either, do you? That baby is not capable of doing anything. And even as our children grow, what are we still doing as parents? We're serving them. When they become teenagers, what are we doing for our children? We are still serving them, aren't we? As they grow older in life, what are we doing? We're still serving them. What Jesus is saying is, look, if you want to be great in the kingdom of God, what you need to understand, the pathway to greatness in the kingdom, it's not about you. It's about serving other people. And that's what, I think that's the main point here. Jesus is saying, you've got to understand, greatness in the world is one thing. Greatness in the kingdom is altogether different. Sometimes as parents, we think as our children grow older, they'll become more independent, and hopefully and prayerfully they do, and I know that they, they do become independent. But even as they grow older in life, we still serve them, don't we? When they get married, when they have children, and you are a grandparent, what are you doing? You're serving your children and your grandchildren. So all Jesus is saying to us is, look, You've got to learn to be a servant. If these guys who spent some three years with Jesus had to be taught to become a servant, then don't you think it stands to reason that we, some 20 centuries removed from this occasion, that we have to be taught to be servants, that we have to be reminded that, look, we're here to serve other people? Sometimes we forget, don't we? So what I want to challenge you to do over the next few days, 
I want to challenge you to think about how you can make an impact in the kingdom of God, how you can not make a name for yourself, but rather you can serve somebody. Let, let me just encourage you to do this. Every day when you get up, try to think about, try to think about it from this vantage point. Pray to God. Help me to be a blessing in the life of somebody today. Help me to serve somebody today. If you'll do that, I promise you, there'll be a lot of opportunities. There'll be opportunities for you to serve other people. Sometimes those opportunities are right before us and we just miss them or we don't engage them. When we, in, when we engage in these opportunities, hopefully and prayerfully we do so for the glory of God. It might be that you're here tonight. You're not a Christian. You're not a servant of Christ. Could I encourage you to come to Christ? Believing that Jesus is the Son of God, repenting of every sin, confessing the name of Christ before others, being immersed in water so that every sin can be washed away. As Peter said, if you will repent and be baptized into Jesus Christ, you will enjoy the remission of your sins, Acts 2.38. God will put you in the church, Acts 2.47. And if you're faithful till death, the promise is the crown of life. If you're here tonight and you're not faithful to his cause, could I encourage you to come home? Could we pray with you and for you tonight as we stand and sing?